Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, December 21st, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. What will movie theaters look like in a post-pandemic world, and what do companies need to do to weather the storm? New research suggests our early human ancestors could have hibernated, and the pyrotechnic German punch that Atlas Obscura describes as mold wine's metal cousin. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. In a normal year, a ton of us would be headed to the movie theater at some point this week, and while there's good reason to hope it will be safe enough to do so again this time next year, the real question, sadly, will be how many movie theaters actually survive for us to go to come December 2021. Now, movie theaters in general, as an experience, are going to survive. As a new article in Quartz points out, they've survived massive changes in consumer behavior before. The advent of television, and then VCRs, and cable movie channels. But this one-two punch of streaming giants and a pandemic will no doubt change the industry in some big ways. So first, despite think pieces for years talking about how the popularity of streaming services could kill the movie theater, experts think it's unlikely to happen. For one, the average movie makes a third of its lifetime revenue from ticket sales. And being in the theater, and especially being a box office success, allows the other revenue streams that make up the other two-thirds, home video, TV airings, streaming, to rise as well. Neil Begley, a senior analyst at Moody's who covers the U.S. film studios, told Quartz, quote, The theatrical window still remains a very important part of the marketing of films for studios. It creates buzz and word of mouth, social media reach, and it establishes the base for determining the values of all the windows that follow. They'd have to find another way to do that, and that is not terribly enticing. End quote. But with ticket sales already declining before the pandemic, that theatrical window has gotten shorter. Do you ever feel like movies come out on DVD and digital way sooner than they used to? It's because they actually do. Movies used to stay in theaters for 75 to 90 days on average, and then they weren't allowed to be released on home video until 60 days after the film stopped generating revenue at the movie theaters. Now, movies don't tend to stay in theaters past the first month when they make the most money, and they're allowed to go straight to on-demand as soon as they stop making money in the theaters, And to appease the movie theaters for this arrangement, they get a cut of the digital revenue, although no one knows exactly how much that is. And while that's beneficial to both studios and theaters, no movies taking up screen space when no one's going to see them, it's not great news for indie films or basically anything that's not a huge blockbuster. Those ones are safe staying in the theater for ages as people still flock to see them, but if we keep moving forward with this trend, less popular movies may only make a requisite couple of weeks appearance in the theater or never go there at all. Still, theaters getting a cut of digital revenue does open up a lot of different possibilities. Comscore's senior media analyst Paul de Garabedian suggests a bundle option where your tickets get you access to the movie theater screening and a digital code to stream it at home later. I know a lot of superhero fans who would definitely jump at that. It reminds me a little bit of DVDs with digital download codes, something I have been wanting books to adopt forever. I personally like having both physical and digital copies of anything I'm reading, so I wish that if you bought the physical one, it came with an ebook copy. But I digress. Back to movies. Quoting Quartz. 
Of the roughly 45,000 screens in the U.S. spread out across 5,500 sites, about 17,000 are owned by the top three exhibitors, AMC, Regal, and Cinemark. Most observers expect the majority of those screens to survive, but of the other 28,000 screens, analysts say as much as a third of them may not make it. The AMCs, Regals, and Cinemarks will service an even greater swath of the market than they already do, while smaller operators fight over the scraps. End quote. Though even those big three are in serious financial trouble. AMC recently said they only have enough capital to get them through the first few months of 2021. The good news for them is that it's not easy for them to be pushed out if they run out of money compared to other industries. Apart from studios needing movie theaters, the theaters themselves are often anchor tenants for malls, who are also in a pretty bad shape right now. And the physical space they use is pretty tough to turn into anything besides another movie theater. But that kind of leverage will only get them so far. Some real, substantial changes are going to have to be made for long-term survival. A popular theory is that a big tech giant like Amazon might buy up a string of theaters, bringing both the money and some innovative changes that could sustain, if not the whole industry, at least one chain. And while that may set off monopoly alarm bells in your head, consider this. Another option would be for the movie studios themselves to take over the theaters. And this is something that's been illegal in the United States since 1948, for similar reasons as to why the idea of Amazon owning all the movie theaters in the country or the world makes us nervous. But this year, the U.S. Justice Department terminated the 1948 Paramount decrees, saying that since movie theaters are no longer the only way people watch movies, the concerns about studios owning both production and distribution lines are not as founded. But what about an Amazon original produced and distributed in theaters and digitally all by Amazon? Or the same thing, but by Disney? I mean, mark my words, the only company that may own more of our lives down the line than Amazon will be the mouse. That said, the possibilities for seamless experiences, something Disney already specializes in, could be pretty cool. Like knowing exactly what the movie theater capabilities would be at every screening and being able to plan for that during production could be awesome. Maybe not awesome enough to excuse a monopoly, but certainly interesting. And whether it's Disney doing it or not, a lot of people are betting that the future of movie theaters will be more experiential. As home entertainment setups get more sophisticated, there has to be more getting people out of the house for a better movie-going experience. Quoting Quartz, The theater of the future may be a quasi-theme park, indoors with interactive media experiences instead of rides. You're not only there to see a movie, but also to engage in other live, in-person events that can't be recreated at home. End quote. There could be VR, maybe live streaming or gaming events in partnership with platforms like Twitch. Personally, I think the most successful implementations will be the ones that bring an in-person community element, more so than a tech one. You know, going to watch a Twitch stream with a hundred other people who also really care about that streamer or that game is what would make the experience better than watching it at home, more so than just getting to see it on a big screen or with better speakers. Especially after the pandemic, we'll all be looking for that human connection and community element in our experiences more than anything, once everyone feels totally safe doing so, of course. 
And I think that exact kind of example could also solve the generational problem that Quartz points out. That the age group who are usually the most loyal movie theater goers, 18 to 24 year olds, have stopped going to the movie theater regularly more so than any other age group. They're going to be a tough nut to crack, but I think focusing on connection instead of bright and shiny new pieces of tech is probably what's going to win them over more than anything. In any case, as Quartz points out, the movie theater industry is certainly not going to die, but the experience itself is almost certainly going to shift, and possibly in some big ways. This year of all years, I really wish I could hibernate. Just go to sleep for the rest of winter and wake up when everyone has access to a vaccine. Sadly, we humans can't hibernate like bears or bats. Or can we? New findings from a cave in northern Spain suggest our hominid predecessors hundreds of thousands of years ago may have actually hibernated through extremely cold winters. In a paper published this month in the journal L'Anthropology, researchers analyzed fossils from a cave called Cima de los Huesos, or the Pit of Bones, near Burgos in northern Spain, one of the most important paleontological sites in the world, and one which has already provided crucial insights into human evolution. The latest findings show certain signs of damage and growth disruption in the fossilized bones of early humans, which mirror that in the bones of hibernating animals. Quoting The Guardian, they suggest these early humans found themselves in metabolic states that helped them to survive for long periods of time in frigid conditions with limited supplies of food and enough stores of body fat. They hibernated, and this is recorded as disruptions in bone development. The researchers admit the notion may sound like science fiction, but point out that many mammals, including primates such as bush babies and lemurs, do this. This suggests that the genetic basis and physiology for a hypometabolism could be preserved in many mammalian species, including humans. State researchers Juan Luis Arsuaga and Antonis Bartziokas, end quote. Knowing it's a fairly out-there claim, the researchers have addressed several counter-arguments, including the question of why modern-day Inuit and Sami people don't hibernate even though they live in extremely harsh cold like the early humans in Sima. Arswaga and Bartziokas say that's because Inuit and Sami people have access to fish and reindeer throughout the winter, which provide them with the fat that they need to make it through, something the Sima people did not have. In fact, the arid climate meant they had close to no options for food in the winter, leading to hibernation being one of the remaining options for survival, potentially. And while that kind of makes sense, other researchers say we should rule out other explanations for the bone inconsistencies before jumping to hibernation, even if it does kind of make sense from a fitness perspective. Chris Stringer of the Natural History Museum in London suggests we could study the genome of the Sema people to determine if they went through the physiological changes that would have occurred during such a hibernation, or what more accurately would have been a deep sleep or torpor, as most large hibernating mammals do. Though he cast doubt that the hominids would have been able to sustain the energy demands that even a torpor state requires. So maybe our early ancestors hibernated, and maybe they didn't, but I am all for any research that lends further insight into hibernation in humans, just in case any findings ever lead to it becoming a real possibility for us in my lifetime. I'm just tired, y'all. <laughs> If 
If you're looking for something to liven up your celebrations this week, why not try the fiery cocktail from Germany that Atlas Obscura describes as a pyrotechnic punch and mulled wine's metal cousin? With apologies to my German professor for the one semester I took it, called Feuerzangenbola, it consists of mulled wine as a base, and then you dip a cone of sugar into some rum and suspend that above the bowl of mulled wine and set it on fire. As the sugar cone melts, small caramelized bits fall into the mulled wine, adding a bit of sweetness. The current iteration of Feuerzangenbola, like so many Christmas traditions around the world, is a bit of a mix of various traditions fused together, cemented by popular culture, and now taken to a larger-than-life level. So back in the 1700s, there was a punch called Krambamboli that was especially popular with students. So popular that they wrote a song about it, one which was still being printed in songbooks a century later. And it's from the preamble of one of those 19th century songbooks containing the sheet music that we find the first description of the punch and can verify that it was meant to be prepared with a cone of sugar dipped in rum and set aflame. But Krambamboli wasn't mulled wine. Historians aren't sure when Feuerzangenbola started being made with mulled wine instead and became Feuerzangenbola, but it does appear in cookbooks starting at least in 1905. But it would take almost 40 more years before the fiery drink really got its place among the German masses with a 1944 film called Die Feuerzangenbola. It's a campy film adaptation of a book of the same name that's basically 21 Jump Street but with a writer. And yeah, 1944, Germany. This movie was part of the larger trend of the then-nationalized film industry to produce cheerful, escapist films to distract and placate the masses from the horrors of World War II. Nonetheless, the movie remains a holiday favorite in Germany and is forever tied to the drink it helped popularize. Atlas Obscura notes that many movie theaters and Christmas markets host screenings where people drink Feuerzangenbola at choreographed times and even bring other props, kind of like a Rocky Horror situation. And a dude named Hartmut Senkel and his partner Jan Oltsneuer make a 9,000-liter kettle of Feuerzangenbola at a market in Munich every year. The thing is massive, and they set it on fire. Check out the link in the show notes for photos of this, as well as a recipe if you want to try it out yourself this year. Just uh, be real careful with this one, please. So on the off chance that you're listening to this as soon as it drops, just a final reminder that tonight is the Great Conjunction, when Jupiter and Saturn will appear in the sky closer than they have in centuries. The best time to watch is about an hour after sunset, so many of you listening may have missed that window, but, you know, it's not like they'll be bouncing away from each other immediately, so you can check them out again tomorrow. They'll just be slightly more socially distanced than before. And today was also the winter solstice, and if you want a replay of that, English Heritage live-streamed both Sunset and Sunrise at Stonehenge, just like they did for the summer solstice, so you can watch that back on their YouTube channel, link in the show notes. But that is it for today, I hope you all had a wonderful weekend, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.